Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A floating prison, passengers facing the reality of a fortnight aboard Japan's quarantined cruise ship. Costing coronavirus, Yum China and chipmaker Qualcomm warning about the Q1 impact and cheap sleep. Mattress firm Casper going public on the softer side. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. first move wherever you are watching us around the world. We'll have the latest on the coronavirus outbreak coming right up. But for now, as always, a look at the markets right now. And I can tell you the message they're sending is one of optimism at this stage. Take a look at what we're seeing around the world here. Start with the United States. The United, uh, the S&P 500, my apologies, and the Nasdaq set to open at fresh record highs. The Dow actually just a fraction away from doing exactly the same. Take a look at what U.S. stocks have done. We've regained virtually everything lost since the market jitters began amid the coronavirus outbreak last month. It's actually, though, a global theme. European stocks also sitting at record highs at this moment. And the Asia recovery continued as well. The Shanghai Composite rallying some 1.7% today. The Nikkei gaining 2.3%. More context on what we're seeing and why in Asia coming up shortly. But for now, I can pinpoint, I think, a few potential reasons here. The first what looks to be a goodwill gesture from Beijing. China says it's going to cut tariffs on some $75 billion worth of U.S. goods by half. It's being taken as a show of commitment to that phase one trade deal, even, of course, as we've been discussing day in, day out, as the nation battles the coronavirus outbreak. Plus, and I think this is ultimately key, central banks are acting here. We've had China, Thailand and the Philippines all taking steps to support their economies. And one final point I'll make here, analysts are discussing the fact that while cases of the virus are going up, the growth rate of transmissions appears to be slowing down. We'll fact check that fact in particular later on in the show for you. But for now, let's get to the drivers and those on the front lines of this outbreak, the latest for you. The number of people who've lost their lives as a result of the coronavirus has now jumped to more than 560. Only two of those deaths, in fact, occurring outside of mainland China. But the virus has now reached more than 25 countries. The number of people infected has gone past 28,000. Two cruise ships are under quarantine off the coast of Hong Kong and Japan with thousands of people on board. Will Ripley is in Yokohama for us and has been looking at this story. Well, great to have you with us. I've been looking on social media too and the reaction from some of the passengers. That's where the prison ship came from. Others are saying it's simply just the boredom here, but for most people, it's their worst nightmare. Talk us through this. 
Yeah, I mean, clearly, Julia, this is a first world problem type of situation and things could be a lot worse for the 3,700 people on board the Diamond Princess. However, cruise ships, if you've ever been on one, the cabin is a place for you to sleep and recharge and then get out and enjoy all the public areas, the pools, the shows, the buffet that's, you know, open 24-7. A week ago, people were dining on lobster, you know, after spending thousands of dollars having the vacation of their lives. And yet now they find themselves under quarantine, which means they cannot leave their tiny cramped cabins. The lucky ones might have a window or a balcony, but the people with less expensive rooms, the interior rooms, they have no window. They're in basically a tiny room uh, breathing in other people's air, wondering if the passengers next to them might be one of the you know, patients who are sick with coronavirus because the number doubled in one day, Julia, from 10 to 20. And really nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. So that kind of mental anguish on top of the fact that, you know, they're having to deliver everybody's meals to their rooms. Uh, sometimes breakfast hasn't been arriving until, you know, the afternoon. And, the you know, the, the, the cruise ship staff uh, are dressed in full protective gear with goggles and whatnot. It's a very unpleasant and unsettling situation for these people. Yeah, it's like something out of a movie. You can, you can just imagine it here. To your point, though, about food, about supplies, about medical supplies too. What is your sense of, of how that's being managed here? Breakfast in the afternoon sounds um, worrying. Well, because the, the cruise ship has had to basically on the fly, you know, reconfigure how they operate. I mean, yes, they have over a thousand, uh, you know, crew members to take care of the more than 2000 passengers on this ship. And it's the same situation, by the way, for that ship uh, off of Hong Kong. It's a total of 7300 people that are on these quarantine cruise ships right now. But you know, all of the passengers would not be ordering room service at once. People go to a dining area. So they have to figure out, you know, because people can't congregate too closely in public spaces because that will spread the virus. And, and you know, that's also unsettling for passengers who are healthy because they're saying, I, I don't mind being quarantined, but why am I being quarantined in a, essentially an enclosed space where I could potentially be exposed? I mean, people feel as, you know, basically as if they're, you know, they're in this you know, as you mentioned, kind of a prison ship. Uh, and, you know, with, with people more, you know, people getting sick or reported being sick every day, there are still dozens of samples that haven't come back yet. But what they've done now that they're, you know, now that they're docked here in Yokohama is they've taken, uh, you know, the confirmed sick patients out and they're now being treated at hospitals here in Japan as opposed to, you know, having the medical staff on board who are grossly under-equipped in, in a best-case scenario for anything like this. I mean, yes, cruise ships have been known to have outbreaks before, but never you know, a situation where you have, you know, a brand new type of virus where there's no cure. And obviously there could be real hysteria that comes from that. So what they've, they've done, you know, they've taken the sick passengers off. They've gotten food and supplies back on the ship. There are also Japanese quarantine officers who are supervising everything to make sure that it goes according to plan. And so when passengers tomorrow are allowed to briefly step outside for the first time in days, they have to stand one meter apart. They have to wear masks at all time and they will be closely supervised by the Japanese who have said that if the passengers are not following these rules, if they're putting themselves at risk of exposure, everybody's going to have to go right back in, get basically locked up in their cabins. Yeah, well, you raised some great points here. Also, 
the sheer fact that we don't really know what we're dealing with here and there's a lot of misinformation and confusion about how this spreads too. That is something we're going to try and tackle later on in the show. But for now, great to have you on this story. Uh, Will Ripley, thank you so much for that. Now, as we watch the health crisis evolve and the efforts to quarantine and to tackle this, of course, businesses, investors around the world trying to mitigate the economic impact and the consequences too. John Terrace on this story for us. John, great to have you with us. I just want to talk about what's interesting about the Asia market reaction, because that's really the epicenter here, China and beyond here. And I mentioned the word optimism here, resilience about the potential impact here, even as companies are coming forth and saying, look, this could have a Q1 impact, if not beyond. It's interesting here. Yes, certainly is, uh, Julia. I call it the world of dual realities. You still have measures being put forward by the cruise liners, as Will was talking about here, and also the airlines. And then you have investors making a bet that this will not spill into the second quarter of 2020. Uh, remember that big sell-off that we saw Monday in Shanghai of 8% and market cap of nearly a half a trillion dollars? It seems to be forgotten. Let's bring up those Asian boards again, and you'll see this rally that was right across the board right out of the starting gate uh, today uh, with the major markets, the big four, if you will, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Seoul, and even Shanghai, up anywhere from one to two, two and a half percent, nearly three percent on the day. There's kind of three factors at play here, though, Julia. Uh, first and foremost, I think, is this idea in the market that the Chinese central bank is ready to pounce if necessary with reserves of uh, $3 trillion. They can do so and perhaps even cut interest rates in February, February 20th, we saw the Filipinos do the, the same thing. The Philippine Central Bank cutting interest rates. There's a caveat here, though. This will put downward pressure on the Asian currency, something we've seen in previous crises, upward pressure uh, on the dollar. There still is hope that a vaccine will emerge faster than expected from the Hubei uh, province. And that is just a wish right now, but that's the word from state uh, media. And finally, I, I think there's also the Trump factor, if you will. Nobody really thought the impeachment would go through, Julia, but it was a dark cloud kind of hanging over on Wall Street and global markets. And I have to say, today, the big news is, of course, the tariff cut by the Chinese willing to work with the United States. But again, another caveat there. Can they meet the promises that they made to Donald Trump, particularly when it comes to oil and gas demand going forward uh, in the situation where it's all hands on deck domestically in China? Yeah, I mean, you raise... All the points I think that investors are looking towards here for reasons for optimism. A thousand years ago, when I was directly involved in financial markets, we'd look at things like shipping rates and commodities <laughs> demand just to get a sense, electricity use in China, really to get a sense of activity there and the manufacturing sector, even as we've seen consumption actually take a, a greater proportion of the economy here. So I want to get your gauge on what you're hearing about commodities demand, John, but also oil, because there is a rumor, it seems, in the market that the Russians simply aren't on board. We're seeing something, some kind of measure cuts here to support prices. What are your sources telling you on both of these points? We're going to the expert here. Well, there's a lot of cross currents in the markets, and we can talk about the demand for oil and, and what some of the trading houses are looking at. Let's cover that news that you're talking about there. In the last 30 minutes, I spoke to a source very close to the negotiations in Vienna, uh, who suggested uh, that the Russians needed more time to assess the recommendations coming out of the so-called Joint Technical Committee uh, in Vienna at OPEC headquarters. Uh, what does this mean in the bottom line? Originally, the Saudis were looking to see an immediate cut of 800,000 to a million barrels a day, which would be implemented uh, in April. I was told that the compromise was 600,000 barrels. 
uh, but the Russians didn't feel comfortable making a snap judgment. They want to assess what's in the pipeline and demand going forward. Now, linking this two together, I was on the phone about two hours ago with the CEO of a major trading house in Asia, and he did confirm to me from their orders and what they see in the pipeline that demand is down 3 million barrels a day, about 20% in China uh, right now. And they said that the bus traffic, something that's a key indicator, down 90%, internal air traffic down nearly 50%. He did not think, looking at the back end of the curve, Julia, that this is going to last beyond April, hence why the Russians didn't want to jump on board with the Saudi proposal today. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So actually, it probably makes sense. The dangers here of a knee-jerk reaction and cutting, mm -hmm. perhaps, exactly, exactly. would be the wrong move. Mm. John Defterius, thank you so much for your wisdom this morning. It's yeah. great to have you. All right, let's move on and talk more about the corporate reaction here, because as I mentioned earlier, we've had a warning from Yum China, the largest restaurant owner in the country, saying 2020 sales could be hit by the coronavirus. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. Anna, I know you'll give us all the details of what Yum China was potentially saying here, but for me, what was fascinating about this earnings release was not the impact to seeing customers coming into restaurants, but actually the relative resilience of contactless of deliveries here in the country too. Yeah, some nifty innovations and very quick thinking, I feel, from young brands here. Contactless delivery. So this involves uh, a biker arriving to a location and leaving the food in an agreed spot and then backing off several meters while the customer collects it. And then the delivery uh, box on the bike is completely disinfected, as are the driver's hands. And they're actually also now rolling this out in terms of uh, contactless pickup in some of their stores. So some really quick thinking. Lots of attention, of course, on the virus on the earnings call today. They said that all their employees have face masks. They're having regular temperature checks. They're doing everything they really can to put themselves in a good position. But those headline figures are pretty shocking. Over a third of all their restaurants in China are shut. And of the ones that are open, they are seeing a huge hit in terms of sales. So compared to the Lunar New Year last year, 40 to 50 percent down on those sales. So we are going to see a big hit for the quarter. And they did warn that not only could we, they see losses this coming quarter, but also they said if the sales trend continues, you, you could there, see it for because the full President year. Trump is speaking in Washington at a prayer breakfast, fresh, of course, off that acquittal last night. Let's listen in. They put themselves far ahead of our great country. Weeks ago and again yesterday, courageous Republican politicians and leaders had the wisdom, fortitude and strength to do what everyone knows was right. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say I pray for you when they know that that's not so. So many people have been hurt, and we can't let that go on. And I'll be discussing that a little bit later at the White House. We're joined today by two people whose faith inspires us all, our amazing wonderful friend, Vice President Mike Pence, and his wonderful wife, Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. 
just want to bring in Joe Johns here joining us from Washington. Joe, clearly the president here and he's expected to speak, I believe, at midday today in the United States as well. Him fresh off that acquittal vote in the Senate yesterday. Final victory, I think, for him, or at least that's what he's saying this morning. Right. And he certainly set the tone, didn't he, right there with those remarks before the national prayer breakfast. And I mean, listen to some of the things he said. He talked about the family ordeal. He referred to corrupt leaders who created this impeachment scenario, said they hurt our nation. He said he does not like people who say, I pray for you when they know that's not true. That's an apparent reference to Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, who made similar comments during the impeachment ordeal. Nancy Pelosi, of course, was in the room and actually delivered a prayer before the president spoke. So that sets the tone uh, and tells us a little bit about the direction the president is going. You know, in just about three hours, we do expect the president to speak here at the White House to expand on his remarks, if you will, around noon Eastern time. That's going to be in the East Room. Pretty clear. The president is ready to fight, ready to talk about his pain and not necessarily use the language of healing. But I don't think a lot of people really expected him to do that in the first place. Yes, uh, perhaps so using the moment. We shall see how he adds to that, of course, when he speaks at 12 Eastern time today. Joe Johns, thank you for joining us on that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up into reverse. Maybe it's temporary. The stock rally in Tesla suddenly losing power. Plus, how coronavirus is expected to impact global growth. It's coming up. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange. We're counting down to the market open this Thursday. And we are looking at a stronger open for U.S. stocks, building on the recovery that we've seen for the past a couple of sessions. All the major averages, in fact, on track to hit fresh records at the open. The first record highs for the Dow, in fact, since mid-January. Is that all? Goodness. Investors applauding China's move today, I think, to slash tariffs on U.S. goods and fresh measures from other central banks to support their economies during the coronavirus crisis. We're talking Thailand, of course, and the Philippines. Don't forget, as John Defteris was mentioning earlier on the show, the U.S. economic and political backdrop to impeachment uncertainty, at least as far as the House and the Senate is concerned, is over. Also, keep an eye on tomorrow's jobs report. Expect That's expected to be solid here in the United States as well. What about bonds right now? 10-year U.S. Treasury yields on track for a rise for the fourth straight session to above 1.6% amid signs that the U.S. economy is holding up well so far in the new year. Distinct difference, though, and we'll keep reiterating this between what the bond markets are saying, even at a rate of 1.6% versus record highs for the U.S. markets. All right, U.S. ratings agency Moody's currently has a Chinese GDP growth forecast of 
3.8% for the United States. GDP expected to come in at 1.7% in 2020. In light of the coronavirus outbreak, has any of that changed? Let's discuss. Moody's Vice President William Foster joins us now. William, just coming into vision there. Great to have you with us all very strategic here on First Move. Talk to me about your outlook for China here. Are you in the process, perhaps, of, of revising that 5.8% GDP target this year? We're, uh, we're in the process of, of you know, reassessing Chinese growth forecasts as well as for the broader G20 uh, mm. global economy because this is obviously something we hadn't anticipated uh, you know, a month or so ago. Um, and it's, it's moving very quickly. Uh, but the, the duration of it and the severity of it are, are, are unknown. But we're, we're factoring all those potential scenarios. You know, we've been talking on the show about the consumption side of the Chinese economy and the corporates that we're hearing from. Yum China is a classic example today with 30% of their restaurants shut right now versus the supply side, Apple, Tesla also with their factories potentially impacted too. What's your sense and what are you hearing both in the consumption side here and the impact on that target, but also labor shortages, production too? Well, it's obviously very different than the basis of comparison that people are working with, which was the 2003 SARS, SARS outbreak, right? Um, three main things that are different today than in 2003 is, number one, the Chinese economy is much bigger and contributing much more to, to global economic growth. It's about 16% of real GDP versus 4% in 2003. Yes. Second, uh, the composition of growth has changed. The drivers of growth are much more related to consumption, like you said. How uh, much more? Because we often see this talked about, but can you quantify it for us? Well, um, sure. We, we look at three-year averages, and, and basically, if you look at three-year averages for, uh, for consumption, it's been about 64% of the driver uh, for, for growth in China versus what was below 50% uh, uh, back then. So okay, it's been, so it there's been a shift. More, but... It is. Uh, but it's, you know, this is a very large economy. Yes. Uh, and this is a huge market. So uh, this, there's a lot of demand. It's, it's a, um, you know, rising wealth levels and a growing middle class effectively. So that's a lot of purchasing power that's, that's in, in China. A lot of that purchasing power as well is spent elsewhere tourism from the mainland to other areas. And I'm not just talking Hong Kong, I'm talking Southeast Asia in particular too. I mean, I was looking at some of the statistics on this. Tourism in terms of the Southeast Asian economy, 12% of, of GDP in Thailand, 6% Malaysia, 16% in, in Cambodia. What are your thoughts on the economic impact, even if we just take tourism, for example, on the region? Well, tourism is the most direct impact on the global economy. Right. Um, so particularly in, in, in Asia, because the Chinese tourists are the, are the biggest contributor to tourist um, exports in that region. Right. So for example, 25% of, of, of tourist earnings in Vietnam um, and in, uh, in other countries in China, you have coming from China. Uh, countries that are gonna be majorly affected by this would be, include Singapore, uh, Japan, uh, like I mentioned, Vietnam, and that's going to be uh, weighing on growth in the future. We have three million tourists a year that come to, to the U.S. from China. So with those tourist dollars also come consumption, uh, and they buy things, particularly in the retail space. So are you in the process of revising perhaps those growth targets for Southeast Asia too? And the obvious thing to bring in here would be central banks. We've already seen the Chinese central bank adding liquidity, the Philippines, Thailand cutting rates here. They're reacting immediately. To what extent do you look at that and go, that's going to at least kick in at some point over the coming quarters, if not in Q1? Well, that will certainly provide some support. 
right? Um, but it can't make up for the entirety of the loss. So as a temporary measure to provide liquidity to the system, that will provide an offset. Lower oil prices will give some, you know, some back to consumers as well. But on the production side, that's going to, the longer this takes, the more it's going to weigh on the global economy, certainly. So we have to see now, to what extent is it, when you're looking at an annual growth target as well, do you reduce that versus just say, look, you may lose something from Q1, but actually if this is only a one-quarter, two-quarter event, that pent-up demand then kicks back into the third and fourth quarter, because that's, as, a, that's as an economic right. analyst, you're always juggling that. Well, that's, that's the hope. Uh, it's more or less what you saw with SARS is a sharp, uh, more severe drop-off uh, in output, but then a quick rebound, and also in financial markets. A Hopefully V-shaped that, recovery. More or less. And, and that's, hope, that's obviously what global economy hopes for today. But the longer it persists, the more that will not be the case, and it will have a, a greater impact on global growth forecasts. Yeah, economic analysis is really tough, particularly in these moments of uncertainty. Fantastic to have you with us. William Foster there from Moody's. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. Record highs expected for the U.S. majors, fueled by global optimism, it seems. Is it justified, though? More analysis coming up. You're with First Move, and see you then. To First Move, live from an incredibly noisy New York Stock Exchange, even by ordinary going public standards, I can tell you that's a loud one. The opening bell is being rung this morning by betting company Casper, celebrating its IPO. But I'm going to tell you, a little time for uh, no time for snoozing here on Wall Street today. I can tell you we've got record highs for all the major averages as U.S. markets gain back just about everything they've lost since the start of the coronavirus crisis. The S&P is coming off. Its best three-day gain, in fact, since June. European stocks rising two to record highs today. And, of course, we saw China's move to cut tariffs on U.S. goods. $75 billion worth of goods here by half. I think that's helping boost sentiment globally, a sign that they're willing to stick to the terms of that phase one trade deal. We've also seen some solid corporate results as well from leading global firms. What about Finland's Nokia? They've reported a surprise rise in Q4 profits. We've also had French drug maker Sanofi reporting an 18% rise in Q4 net income. Steel giant, meanwhile, ArcelorMittal saying 2020 demand is looking strong. That's an interesting sign amid uh, concerns about Chinese demand in particular too. So I think that would be uh, one to watch in coming quarters. All right, uh, let's take a look at our global movers this morning as well. Twitter shares rallying after the social media giant posted its first ever quarter of revenues above $1 billion. User growth exceeded expectations too. That's helping offset an earnings miss and softer guidance in the current quarter. And while shares of cosmetics company Estee Lauder are also higher in the session, up some 3.3%. They beat Q4 earnings expectations by a full 21 cents a share. Revenue was a market-friendly too. Peloton on a bike to ride to nowhere, it seems, this session. The bike fitness firm company reporting a loss of 20 cents a share. Wow, look at that, down almost 10%. That, in fact, was better than expected. We did see a revenues making solid gains, but they did lower their guidance for the current quarter. Perhaps that's what's driving the stock lower early on in the session today. Tesla shares once again under pressure after falling more than 17% yesterday. Investors touching the brakes of it here as the coronavirus delays production in China. Peter Valdez de Pita 
joins us now on this story. Peter, great to have you with us. I say touching the brakes here because in light of what the rally that we've seen so far or had seen some 70% plus, seeing 17% losses and then a further six today is um, requiring context, I think. But what yes. was it that we heard yesterday about China and potential Chinese production delays? Because a lot of the optimism here right now that we're seeing in the share price is being fueled by production in China. Yes, that factory in China, as you said, is temporarily delayed or shut down during this virus. Also, Tesla, remember, is an automaker like any other. Uh, automakers around the world are, are looking at what's going on in China with concern because China also supplies a lot of parts. And there are many parts companies that say they are, they are suppliers to Tesla. So the question is how much will Tesla's be, uh, production be disrupted beyond just the shutdown of their own plant? And that's an issue for uh, other automakers around the world, too. Hyundai's had to shut down a plant in Korea. Other automakers are concerned about possibly having to shut down because you can't make a car with most of the parts. And if any of your parts are coming from factories in China, you're going to have a problem no matter where in the world your final assembly plant may be. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great point to make here as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was just looking through some of the numbers here in terms of what analysts are thinking here. The medium type price target is $444, 40 percent less than uh, the lowest point that this stock was trading on Wednesday morning. So the, the noise around this stock, quite frankly, is, um, is pretty incredible at this stage, which is why I'm glad we've got you here, because a lot of the debate has been about the valuation on this as an auto company versus a technology company and whether we're going through ultimately that transition. Peter, what's your sense here of the auto performance of this company when we're talking about electric vehicles, particularly in context versus other players yes. that are moving into this space? It's a really tough and critical time for Tesla. They've done they've done really well. I mean, they've got the Model 3 going on. It is by far uh, the best-selling electric car. So that's doing well for them. Model S and X are following, you know, falling in line with pretty much other auto, major automated manufacturer electric cars out there. But right now, you've got Ford getting ready to come out with a Mustang Mach-E. You've got other automakers coming into the market with electric cars. It's hard to imagine that some of those electric cars aren't going to be very good. Uh, and these other companies have big dealer networks to sell those electric cars. So this is a very critical time for Tesla when they come out with a Model Y. That one needs to do very well. It's a crossover, a popular segment in the market. My concern about the Model Y is it's not terribly different from the Model 3. Uh, it doesn't have three rows of seating. It's only a little bit taller. So I'm not sure how many customers they're going to get who are holding out just for that particular, that particular vehicle. It's a critical time. Tesla's done very well so far. Um, I just don't know how they get to be, how the valuation gets to be where it is multiple times other automakers that are transitioning into electric vehicles as well. Yeah, a tech company, not an auto company. And that's the bottom line here. What it's, about China it's specifically? It's a tech company because... that makes autos. <laughs> the batteries, though, Peter, the battery technology. True. Fight me on this one, too. They 
do. They have, they're excellent. I mean, one thing about Tesla is they are ahead of the learning curve from everybody else on making electric cars. I keep saying other companies know how to make cars. Tesla really does know how to make an electric car very well. They know how to do the battery thing. They know how to get those efficiencies in the, in the driveline that give the car the kind of range that they can get while still getting very good performance. So in that sense, Tesla's ahead of the curve on some other automakers. But in the end, I mean, let's face it, I have a hard time believing that companies like Volkswagen, General Motors, uh, are not going to have a pretty easy time catching up in those areas. They're going to learn quickly, and Tesla is going to have some serious competition. Even in China? Yes, I think even in China. Remember, China is a very, very competitive market. And yes, the, the Chinese government is is pushing electric cars, maybe less than they were before, but they're still pushing customers towards electric cars. But there are also a lot of electric car companies in there like Neo and others uh, that are going to be competing heavily in that market. And some of them also have some interesting looking self-driving or automated driving technology, which is also a big, a big selling point for Tesla. So it's not going to be easy for Tesla there. Oh, Peter Valdez, great to have you with us. We will debate this for many weeks and months, I'm sure. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. And up next, virulent rumors. We sought fact from fiction amid conflicting reports on just how the coronavirus spreads. Stay with us. Welcome to First Move. As coronavirus spreads, Hong Kong is planning to impose a mandatory 14-day quarantine on all visitors from mainland China. The legacy of the 2003 SARS outbreak weighing heavily on the city. Chrissy Lustak has the story. Even after nearly two decades, former SARS patient Alex Lam is haunted by his experience. Um, I was put in a, a, a big room with uh, many other patients. Uh, I, I heard some coughing at night, crying. And uh, that's, that's really sad. It's really sad. SARS infected around 8,000 people globally and killed 774, nearly half of them in Hong Kong. The isolation of cases eventually led to the end of the outbreak. The new coronavirus outbreak is already larger than SARS, and unprecedented measures are in place to control it. The rapid construction of hospitals, mass production of medical supplies and protective equipment, and sweeping travel restrictions and temperature checks. When will these measures stop the outbreak? Well, the answer lies in understanding the virus itself. Inside that building is the world's first lab-grown copy of the Wuhan coronavirus outside mainland China. It's a major breakthrough that allows researchers here at Hong Kong University to better understand the behavior of the virus. Inside the lab, we are required to wear face masks. My feeling is that this is just going to be like SARS is that the world is going to get basically a very bad cold for about five months. But with one major caveat, it appears the new virus, unlike SARS, can spread before symptoms arrive. But the problem with this virus is that it does appear is that there is a period within the first four or five days where people say they can be virus shedding but maybe asymptomatic. So for that reason, it's going to be far more difficult to manage. I want to shake your hand, but it's during an outbreak, so... The masks are off when I meet Malik Paris in his office. He advises the World Health Organization on the virus. Either Indian way of greeting or, uh, or the Japanese way of greeting. 
He says there are two extreme scenarios. The outbreak is brought under control or... The other extreme, of course, is that the virus is like influenza, which means that it cannot be contained and it will spread. This has already happened with H1N1, also known as swine flu. The strain emerged in a pandemic in 2009, and now it's a seasonal virus. But for Alex Lamb, humankind doesn't need another disease to contend with. Uh, We must stand together. We need to think positive, because one day the disease will go away. Now the head of a group of SARS survivors in Hong Kong, he is calling for the government to take tougher measures whatever it takes to end the latest outbreak. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, despite what you heard there, there are questions being asked about whether the virus can in fact spread before symptoms show. Public health experts tell CNN a report suggesting the virus can be transmitted by apparently healthy people or outwardly healthy people was flawed. The question of how the virus spreads is key to understanding just how contagious it is. Let's get some context. I'm joined by Eric Feigl-Ding. He's an epidemiologist and health economist at Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Eric, fantastic to have you with us. Can we sort fact from fiction here and help us understand how is this virus transmitted and can somebody that's not outwardly showing symptoms pass the virus on to someone else? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's a question that the scientists have been contending with since the very beginning. What we do know is that the virus has a reproductive number of between two and three, which means for every one infected person, that person infects two to three additional, which is a pretty large number. The seasonal flu has a 1.3, the, uh, the swine flu uh, Uh, The other pandemic of Spanish flu, 1.8, and SARS had also around 2.3. But SARS was not infectious when you did not have symptoms, which allowed containment much easier. But there's a lot of early indications that this virus, you could actually transmit it even when you don't have symptoms, albeit a little bit slower via airborne droplets and uh, bodily fluids. But this recent study says that Munich case of the woman who transmitted in Munich she did have symptoms, and the New England Journal paper published an erratum and took that back. But there's lots of other cases in China that says you could still transmit it even without symptoms. And um, U.S. Uh, NIH uh, Allergy Infectious Disease Director Anthony Fauci agrees with that. He still believes it is potentially infectious even without symptoms, which makes containment much more difficult. Okay, so just so that I've understood, you mentioned the word R0, which is the baseline, the mathematical term that indicates just how infectious a disease is. And and what you're saying here is actually it's double as infectious as flu, just about, which is is very concerning. But to your point as well, and, and I think this is the key here, the suggestion at this stage is someone who is outwardly healthy can pass this on. That's right. That's right. There's an incubation of five days. And during that day uh, period, for SARS, you could not pass it on, which allowed containment much more easy for someone who flew on a plane, got off and got sick the next day. You didn't have to find uh, all, everyone on the plane. But now with this virus potentially being able to spread during that uh, five day approximate window in which you have no symptoms, it makes containment extremely difficult. 
but that said, the R naught clearly shows it is infects one, every infected person infects one infects two to three others, which is pretty worrisome. Just for context, SARS it took three months to hit eight thousand cases worldwide. We've hit twenty eight thousand cases in one month. That's about three times three, nine times faster than SARS in terms of incidents from the beginning. So this is virus is definitely faster than SARS. And you know, it, whether it kills Eric, more, we don't know. But we'll Eric, have to the, see. The key here is, and I think it's an important one, that the Beijing government accused the United States of overreacting, of, of spreading panic. Mm. You yourself actually came under fire for creating alarm just by actually stating what you believe is, is fact here and, and the data suggests. How do we handle this and make sure that we are aware of the risks here, responding appropriately, but people aren't fearful? What's the right. advice here? Right. So this virus, I, you know, it does uh, spread very quickly. And that's what I was trying to express, that this has a potential to become a pandemic, which experts now at uh, at the WHO and, and many other uh, global health institutes agree there is a pandemic potential. But it's not a pandemic yet because the mortality outside of China is still very, very low. And we still have to, we're in this wait and see period. But the fact is, other, uh, for example, plane travel, someone said, there was a research from London that says for every 100 infected person who travels, we're only able to detect about less than 40, about 37 cases out of 100 that travels on a plane. And that's very worrisome. And that's from London uh, uh, School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine researchers. So containment of this virus is a little bit worrisome. Traditional measures, like, such as quarantine, does not work perfectly, it seems. But the jury is still out how infectious it is during the early phases of the virus. So this it's virus will be days. here for several, two to three more months to come maybe even longer. What about hopes of a vaccine, Eric, very quickly? Yeah, the vaccine, well, there's, they're trying to put out a rapid vaccine into the field to test in four uh, months, but that's just for additional uh, starting te testing. Uh, we won't have a vaccine ready to deploy for nine to 12 months. And just so you know, we contain SARS faster than um, developing the vaccine. Uh, so when the vaccine arrived for SARS, we had already contained it. So there's still hope, but long term, it looks like this virus does spread faster than SARS, and we will need a vaccine in the long term. There are some antiviral drugs that are they're also being tested, but again, they're also 6, 9, 12 months away. So in the meantime, public health measures, hand washing, covering your mouth, um, and not spreading it as much as you can is the best public health thing we can do. Yeah, good advice. Wash hands, cover mouth. Eric, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Eric Feigelding there, epidemiologist and health economist at Harvard Chan School of Public Health. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with today's boardroom brief. LinkedIn CEO will have to update his profile. Jeff Weiner stepping down after more than a decade at the helm. The SVP of product Ryan Roslinsky is taking over. LinkedIn, which is owned by Microsoft, has 16,000 employees and nearly 675 million members. Raw mail stock fell today amid problems with its transformation plans, strike threats and a declining letter delivery business. The group says the year ahead will be challenging, especially with continued economic uncertainty. 
and ride-sharing app Uber reports fourth quarter results after the close today. The company's losses are expected to accelerate, but new cost-cutting measures are expected too. Uber shares up some 24% so far this year. All right, so after the break on first move, they say you snooze, you lose. Well, we'll see what investors make of Casper, the mattress company, whose IPO does feel a little soft right now. That's going to start trading today. More on that next. American mattress in a box company Casper starts trading today. It priced at the softer end of expectations. Claire Sebastian takes a look. Whether you like it firm or soft, memory foam or with a pillow top, buying a mattress has become so complicated it's a joke. Hear ye, hear ye, delivery from the mattress key. Hey you, it's Clue, how many? Are you sleeping in the middle of my department store? Over the last decade, startup. This is the box that started it all. Ladies After startup has woken up to the man. problem. We are now on the path to sleep enlightenment. Now, Casper wasn't the first, and it's certainly not the cheapest among the online mattress disruptors. But it has risen fast. Starting online in 2014, it's now a $400 million business with 60 retail stores and 18 retail partners. Like this one, Raymore and Flanagan on New York's Upper West Side. In just four months, Casper has become one of their most popular brands. The moment we started putting the Caspers on the floor, putting the marketing and the products in the window, people are walking past Broadway all day long, and it's bringing them in. First impressions of the mattress aren't bad. Keep sinking, sinking into the mattress. For Casper's business, though, there might be a little too much sinking. The company says it expects losses of about $94 million in 2019. In 2018, the company spent about $155 million on sales and marketing expenses alone. It's losing money, and it doesn't appear to be reducing those operating losses even as it gains top line, meaning there is no scale benefit here. Casper didn't comment for this story ahead of their IPO. The sleep economy can be unforgiving. In 2018, the U.S.'s largest mattress retailer, Mattress Firm, filed for bankruptcy, having expanded too fast. The coil systems at the bottom will finally kick in and give you a little more pushback or resistance. And that's causing some resistance when it comes to Casper's bottom line. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. We'll see if it prices and uh, starts trading on the squishy side. All right, that's it. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Look, it's going to sign off now. I'm going to do it every day. No, don't feed the beast. <laughs> Have a great day, everyone. <laughs> when you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.